If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. For today's episode, I thought that I would revisit the style of episode where we address arguments or objections to anarchy or aspects of anarchy. And I do my best to try to provide answers to them. In the last episode, I did that from more of a Christian perspective, which I think is useful, and I definitely want to do some episodes tackling objections to anarchy from the Christian perspective. In this episode, I thought it'd be good to also take some time to just answer objections to anarchism more generically, because sometimes people might, let's say, be open-minded on the theological end, but be a little bit closed off or skeptical when it comes to trying to understand how anarchy could be a workable system in a practical sense, or they have very just practical questions about, well, well, how would anarchy work for X or for Y? And so while this episode by no means going to be exhaustive of all sorts of answers to how anarchy could work practically, I hope to at least do a general overview of answering some of those objections and maybe pointing people in the right directions as to where to look more into those areas and subjects. To do this, I thought that the best way was I basically Googled arguments against anarchy, and I actually found some good ones that are kind of like good representative questions of what you generally see. In a post on Quora, which literally just says, what are some of the best arguments against anarchism? And this was from a college student, and they said, anarchism is, a, is an appealing idea, but is itself utopian, even if its adherents might not admit it? I think some of the problems in anarchism boil down to this. How will defense be handled in anarchism without relying on nation states providing for you in any way? What prevents the communities from becoming corrupt? How will anarchism work on a global scale? Most of all, how will the supposed revolution come to be? Will this insanely complex system we've built come crashing down at the hands of black block rioters that will somehow reform society into the stateless community-driven world they envision? So we'll start out by trying to take this in order. He starts out by doing what a lot, a lot of the objections that we get to anarchy always have to start by couching it in the framing of anarchy is utopian. I know that I've touched upon this before, but I think that calling something utopian is just a lazy argument. I mean, really, anyone could label any ideological belief as utopian in a sense that, like, if you expect something to be perfect, 
then it is sort of by definition utopian. But if instead of expecting something to be perfect, you're just saying, well, it's going to be better or more preferable to the status quo or compared to other things, well, then it's by definition not utopian. So listen, there are probably anarchists you could find who the way they would describe anarchy might come across as utopian. On the other hand, I would say that a lot of the objections that I get to anarchy and why anarchy wouldn't work or why the state is better are themselves based in a sort of utopian or nirvanian fallacy where people are expecting that your preferred political ideology has to address every potential problem and every potential pitfall and answer any possible question they have and answer them perfectly or it can't possibly be a good or even workable or tenable idea. And it sort of like ignores the idea that the system of statism in its various forms has itself not been utopian and has led to many problems. The way I often put it is that anarchy is not utopian, but it's rather the rejection of what I would label as a more utopian idea, that central planning and the institutionalizing of the use of force against peaceful people and a monopoly over law and order and defense, that these things could usher in a peaceful society when we see that that is so contrary to history and the status quo. And insofar as our societies do maintain some level of peace, it's in spite of the state monopoly on violence, not because of. If you disagree with me, we'll just ask the question, assuming you are not a violent person, what compels you to not be violent? Now, you might say it's a fear of the consequences, and perhaps there's an element of truth in that, but if you commit violence against someone, the threat of violence isn't necessarily from the state. It's not as if there are police officers hiding around every corner ready to pounce out and stop crime. Rather, we would be fearful of attacking people because they can attack back. If you punch someone, they can punch you back. If you draw a gun or a deadly weapon in a public area, there might be someone else with a weapon that could do you bodily harm. And so there is an element of self-preservation there, but that doesn't really require the state or monopoly on violence to be present and to be a natural deterrent. Furthermore, although as a Christian, I do believe in the fallen nature of man and that we are sinful, I do think that at the same time, most people have an aversion to initiating violence against people and that they don't need the constant threat of reciprocal violence to incentivize them to not commit violence. Rather, I think most people are generally oriented towards wanting to be conflict adverse, wanting to avoid conflict insofar as as much as they can. And I would argue, actually, that in some ways, the state can act to the detriment of this because the state can often, in many ways, perpetuate violence by perpetuating and worsening crime, perpetuating and worsening poverty, which can lead to crime and lead to people acting in desperate ways. At the end of the day, if you imagine, you know, every time you go out to the restaurant and you sit down in it with a group of, of 
dozens of people, or if it's a big restaurant, maybe even hundreds of people all in a small space, there's not always like armed security or people who are just like constantly staring you all down, waiting for someone to break out and do violence against someone and then be gunned down as a response. No, people, generally speaking, it's the exception and not the rule that when you go to places that you're not going to encounter a lot of people who are just on the edge of their seats getting ready to commit violence and just barely holding it together. This just doesn't match up with reality. It reminds me of the way that, at the time, presidential nominee Ron Paul, who was seeking the Republican nomination for office, answered a question about heroin because he was asked, well, do you want to ban heroin? And Ron Paul, being a libertarian, said, no, I don't want to ban heroin. And people kind of like booed him or like, I forget, they booed or they laughed. And then he challenged them and said, come on, you know, if heroin was made legal right now, how many, like raise your hand, how many of you would go do heroin if the government made it legal right now? And everyone kind of like thought about it and then chuckled and laughed. And I think he got a standing, like an applause or standing ovation or something because it was like, it was a good answer. Because like a lot of people don't really need the threat of violence to stop them from doing stupid things. And Sometimes when you make something illegal, you create all these malincentives to do that thing more so than there would be incentives to do it in a true kind of like free market setting. Furthermore, those things can be more harmful when they're done in the black market setting. So similar to how Dr. Paul answered that question is how I would respond to the objection that like, you know, we need this sort of like state monopoly on violence to stop people from committing violence against each other. Now, at the same time, anarchy is not utopia. I am not presupposing that if we eliminated the state that violence would go away. I think that violence would be less than it is now, but there are still going to be people who will initiate violence or some sort of crime, theft or vandalism or fraud or something like that against other people. Right from the get-go, before I get into these specific objections of how do you handle defense, and this can be defense from other nations or just defense from crime in general, and then the other objections are going to come, I need to just once again stress that in order to demonstrate anarchy as a viable political alternative to the status quo, the threshold that needs to be met is merely meeting the status quo or exceeding the status quo in terms of effectively deterring violence and crime, it doesn't have to be an elimination of violence and crime because not only is that not realistic, but we already know the current system fails to deliver on that. So everyone, as long as they're dealing with reality and dealing with the fallen world we live in, when advocating for any political philosophy is going to have to acknowledge that, yeah, there are limits and there are ways that anything can fall short And you can describe, I can describe particular mechanisms for how an anarchist society would deal with certain things. And that doesn't mean that they're always going to handle them perfectly. People will sometimes get away with doing bad and evil things. I would argue that that happens not only a lot in our society because of a failure of our government and our court systems and system of laws, but all too often in our current system, we see that People get punished for criminal activity less less correlated with their guilt level and more correlated with their wealth level because 
when you aren't able to afford anything but a public attorney, you end up just taking a plea deal or getting worse a worse defense, which leads to a conviction when you might have been proven innocent or to a worse sentencing. And then on the flip side, people with connections can quite literally sometimes, it seems, get away with murder. So there is always the threat of corruption in any system. But again, we are doing, it has to be a comparative analysis to say that it would be at least not as bad as the status quo or hopefully, and I would argue, definitely better than the status quo. So how would defense be handled? Well, first of all, I think we start with sort of, if we're kind of imagining this in terms of like layers of defense, right? Like sort of like a fortress or a castle. We have the first line of defense is just people defending themselves. In an anarchist society, we don't have laws that are on the books prohibiting people from purchasing firearms or from purchasing other sorts of self-defense equipment for their bodies or for their homes or their businesses, etc. And so right away, you would find that the ability for people to defend themselves would be a natural increase of that natural deterrent that people have just based upon self-preservation alone to not engage in violent acts, even if they are oriented towards violence, if they know they can't win or know that there's just like a 50-50 chance that they're going to win, they're a lot less incentivized to do so. Studies show, you know, statistics would show that the areas in society that have the most shootings tend to be the areas where people are the least able to defend themselves. And things like gun-free zones are just largely ineffective at deterring violence. In fact, it kind of creates a target like, hey, no one here is supposed to be armed and able to defend themselves, and it creates a perfect opportunity for a would-be shooter to go and commit the evil that they have committed in their hearts to do. The concern sometimes that people will make is, well, what if this just turns into like the Wild West, which is kind of a an argument that bugs me because the Wild West was not like it was in the movies, and people often sensationalize the degree to which things were solved with some kind of like open fire, street justice, grand theft auto style way of solving disputes. So one thing we have to realize is that defense is not exactly cheap. It's, you know, not free. So people, and then as much as defense is going to cost money, offense is going to cost even more money. Because if you're going to think, well, wow, these people are all defending themselves. And so if I'm going to attack someone, I not only need to attack, I don't want to attack them from a position where I only have a 50-50 chance of it to win. I want to put my the odds in my favor. And so I'm going to have to get more guns, get bigger guns, get body armor, radar, some kind of machinery to help me hire more men so I can outnumber them. And suddenly then you're looking at spending a large amount of money. And you find that this is harder to do without the institutions of taxation and printing money, which is how our our military exists today. We're not paying our police or our military in like tangible goods in terms of like gold or silver or food or utilities or water or anything. No, we're paying them in U.S. dollars, and U.S. dollars are acquired either by taxation or by the printing of money by the Federal Reserve. And eliminating these 
mechanisms of fiat currency means that people would only be exchanging currency that is based on actual goods or services backed by, you know, likely a commodity like gold or silver, oil, or, you know, you know, exchanging cryptocurrencies or things like that. Bartering is always an option too. Well, when you don't have the ability to just take money from people at the point of a gun and they have no, no choice but to give the money to you. So it's like, you don't have to do any work to get the money. You can just take it or even easier yet when you, you don't have the ability to just borrow money against yourself, or just print it and spend as you will. Suddenly hiring people to go and commit violence. There is not only then the layer of just self-preservation at play, but there is an economic disincentive for trying to wage in some sort of offensive attack to gain some upper hand in the market or to acquire resources. Think about it. That money and effort that you're spending, it's like, well, you, well, how much money do you have to spend in hiring these mercenaries and thugs and armed armed hands, finding ones that are going to be willing to commit this kind of violence because while the, those kind of people exist, there's going to be a lot of people who are just going to refuse to do that kind of work. Then you have to find people that would do that kind of work and how do you know you can trust them? How much are they going to be asking for to do that kind of risky work? And then you think, okay, people are going to then do the economic calculation of, is this worth it? There's an idea. I haven't done an episode on this yet on this podcast, but I think to do a really quick introduction into Austrian economics, the idea of human action that Mises talks about is that humans don't do something, they don't act if they don't think that the action that they're taking is not going to better themselves or it's not going to lead to themselves being better off as a result of the action that they're taking. You know, humans will make some kind of value hierarchy and evaluate what their needs are, what their wants are, and weigh all their options and choices and pick the one that they think is the best option at that given time. So when people are going to act in the world and they need to acquire something and they have the choice of acquiring it through voluntary trade with other people or waging some sort of war, mini war or conquest or raiding and criminal activity, the more malincentives we stack up, the less likely that kind of violence is going to have, especially it's one thing to think about one person who's just desperate or just not very smart going off on their own and just trying to go on a stealing spree or going off trying to kill some people. And people, you know, if you're one lone person by yourself, the people around you are going to probably, odds are, be able to handle you. So then in order to do any major damage, you have to collectivize the amount of people who are committing the violence or the crime. But when you can't conscript people with like tax dollars or the or just money that's printed from thin air, but you have to actually give them something that, that you've made or earned, well, what's easier then? Is it easier? Is the incentive structure set up so that you are more incentivized to go the route of getting all the people together and the resources together and plan together and then putting yourself at risk of retaliation, death, or some kind of getting in trouble with some sort of legal system? Or are you better off acquiring those resources through some sort of 
peaceful transaction, whether it's art or trade, or you know, if you don't have any money, then going and working for someone to to get some kind of currency or going and creating something. These all require work. They all require human action. But when we create the incentive structures that anarchy lends itself to, we find that although there are still going to be people who will go out and commit violence, we find that there are major incentives against that. And that's not even, you know, we're talking, I've only gotten two layers into the defense here. We have just regular self-defense and we have economic incentives against people doing violence. And those are just two lines of defense that anarchy adds. We have more than that. We also have the idea of private security, which is similar to defense, the first layer. But instead of just you defending yourself, you can hire private security. This exists to some extent in our current society. You know, we have people that have home security systems, people that can hire security, like armed security for their homes or for their businesses. This would exist in a free market. And in fact, it would be bigger and more expansive because there wouldn't be a standing police or anything like that because there'd be no nation state to create and fund them. So the private sector would generate the would generate more private security agencies and they would be in competition with one another. And if you're worried about these private defense organizations becoming like mafias or cartels or micro governments of a sort, remember, they don't have the ability to print money and they don't have the ability to really stay in business and go around and just steal people's money because that sort of practice is going to lose them a lot of business because no one's going to want to do business with a private security agency that's going around and stealing from people and hurting people and breaking their contracts and et cetera. They would, their reputation would be trashed and their competitors would immediately take all of their business. And then those economic incentives come to bear on them and they find themselves ostracized from society, unable to take care of themselves, unable to work, they might be able to move to some remote area and live off the land or maybe pay some sort of restitution or maybe move to halfway across the world and try to live there, do something. But they're not going to get very far where they're at with a course of action of trying to hurt the clientele or, or let clientele hire them to just go and be armed thugs to go hurt other people. Now, to the extent that private security or private defense agencies get used that way today, they get used by the state. They get offered state protection. So really, when you're just being paid by the state to go do state work, you're just essentially an arm of the state. You're not really acting in a private market, free market fashion. And then the other layer of defense, and this isn't exhaustive, but I'll just end it here because I don't want the whole episode to be just on defense, but the other layer of defense that's important here is the idea of private law enforcement. And so there would still be courts and there would still be an enforcement of law. It would be mostly contract law. And it would be the idea that people would probably have contracted with different dispute resolution organizations that would probably partner with personal liability, excuse me, personal liability insurance companies that would partner with like your home insurance and stuff and and your car insurance, life insurance, et cetera. And private arbitration already exists today. I mean, when you get into a car accident, your car insurance agencies basically have, you know, a set up arbitration system for determining who was at fault in the accident, how the payouts are going to happen, how restitution is going to happen, et cetera. 
And although they don't, it doesn't always happen perfectly, it does usually get solved. And if they have a problem, well, and they need a third-party arbitration, the free market can provide that. You don't need to go to a state to get some kind of third-party arbitration. People like Brian Kaplan and others have done studies showing how private arbitration is cheaper. It produces better outcomes when they do surveys based on people's satisfaction with the outcomes of private arbitration. It works quicker, more effectively, more efficiently. And you can imagine in an anarchist society that people would be incentivized to mostly do business, especially higher-end level businesses. It's one thing if you're living in a rural area, right, where there's like a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people, and you know, the people just get along, there's low crime or no crime, and the economy is half-bartering anyway, and people are just trading cows for, you know, trading milk for eggs and crops for tools or et cetera. But in, in other areas, you know, people would probably, if they're exchanging Bitcoin or different currencies and whatnot, they might be incentivized to only do business with people who have a dispute resolution organization that they can show that they have, you know, just like an insurance card, they would have an insurance card to show that they have some kind of representation. And if they didn't, some people might still contract with them, but there might be different rules or different rates that they'd have to pay for. Or like, think about like the user agreements that you sign sometimes when you buy a product or use an online product or when you enter into a space and they make you sign a waiver, signing a contract of sorts. So, you know, these sorts of systems, and I'll share a link in the show notes, a good article by the Mises Institute on the idea of private law. But basically, the although there's more layers of defense and way more on the subject of providing for defense that I could get into, I hope this is just a basic summary of how right away in anarchy, there's like four basic major lines of defense. There's that first line of defense, which is just self-preservation and people defending themselves and not being restrained by the state in their ability to do so. There is the basic economic incentive to prefer peaceful, voluntary interactions rather than that, that. And those would be cheaper and just more natural rather than the more expensive routes of trying to hire enough people to successfully engage in violence and coercion when you don't have systems of taxation or money printing and fiat currency to back you. Then there's private defense and private law and arbitration. Those are the four main broad categories of how an anarchist society deals with defense and the scales out, you know, it does not just works for handling crime and violence within a given area. But when you're talking about defense from other areas or from outside forces, or potentially if you're in an area that's anarchist and you're worried about an invasion of a nation state that still exists in the world. And again, this is not, let me just say this, it is completely possible that a anarchist defense would fall short, but say there's a society that's anarchist and they create their anarchist defense systems and you know the different communities have a con- contracts with each other to have their militias come together and band together in defense of a invading foreign military. And let's say just say for the sake of argument that they lose. Well, it's not like state-funded militaries are guaranteed to protect you. There are plenty of instances today and throughout history where people have nation states and they have state militaries and they get invaded and they lose or they get invaded and they don't win and, you know, they compromise. They like, 
think of today with Russia and Ukraine, the idea of that ending and everyone going back to normal seems a little tough. It seems likely that at some point people are going to have to you know, make some kind of concession to Russia or the war will just continue in perpetuality. Even if I'm wrong about that, then Russia would have to make some kind of concession to Ukraine and it would lose. But the point just being that having a nation state is no more guarantee of safety than anarchy is a guarantee of safety throughout history. And today, nations have been invaded, nations have been conquered, nations have fallen with state militaries. So even if a anarchist military fell short, can't it's not really de- demonstrable that it would be worse than the status quo. The potential upsides for why it would be better include the fact that you have free market forces, which means that you have less waste, more efficiency. Defense is, as I talked about earlier, infinitely easier and cheaper than offense. Offense requires having to travel, having to transport more weapons and men and supplies and keep morale up and stuff. People are less incentivized to go and invade an area than they are to defend their homes. Just think about how epically bad the wars in the Middle East went and how the might of the U.S. military was effectively, for the most part, thwarted and at least halted from total victory in you know Afghanistan and Iraq by basically farmers and AK-47s and just kind of guerrilla warfare tactics and stuff. So, you know, an anarchist society, because it's a free market, would generate a lot of wealth and people would be in even better positions from that wealth and with the use of private militias and private defense agencies and stuff that would likely have contingency plans and stuff that would be rolled out in the event of some kind of external threat or invasion. And there's a lot of reasons to believe that an anarchist construction of defense would be superior or at least would be superior to what the statist defense could be brought up. And now an anarchist construction of offensive military might not be as good as a statist one. Like there's an argument that you could make there perhaps, but the statist offensive effort is funded by taxation and fiat currency and money printing. And those things create economic instability in their own country. They produce wastefulness and stuff. And so you can have like a bigger military that maybe looks more impressive on paper. But how effective are they going to be? Whereas the anarchist defense doesn't have to, you know, the anarchist military, so to speak, doesn't have to be good at offense, just has to be good at defense. So it's a lot easier to sit there and protect your home and tire out the invaders or thwart them or also just make it less desirable to be invaded because when you have a population of people who are not paying taxes and who don't recognize any monopoly of violence over them, trying to conquer them and sub- make them submit to a, like they didn't submit to a monopoly of violence there at home, but you're going to conquer these people and make them submit to an external monopoly of violence. It's it's not impossible, of course, but there's a lot of optimism, I think, to think that the odds are at least not stacked against you, that there's a lot of things going for you and reasons to believe that you could fare quite well trying to defend yourself, defend a society in a theoretical anarchy. Now, the college student here also asks, well, how do we get there? And well, that's the question, right? How do we get there? (laughs) Nobody quite has that answer. I could similarly ask in 
1830 or 1810 or some point in the past before the 1860s, how is slavery going to end? Just imagine the institution of slavery. We'll go back to the ancient world, go back to biblical times and try telling them that one day in the future, slavery will be viewed as immoral and that many nations will seek to abolish and ban slavery. It's just unheard of. Now, at the same time, slavery still exists in the modern world. So despite our best efforts, there is still some slavery. But that doesn't mean that we stop opposing slavery. doesn't mean we don't keep trying to push that needle towards less and less slavery. And I would conflate statism with a sort of more modernized version of slavery. And the same thing applies to that. As we march on into the future, we continue to push back against tyranny of all forms and slavery of all forms. And that includes the tyranny and slavery of the state. And listen, there might not be one. I don't necessarily think it's going to be like one day you go to sleep and you're living in statism and the next day you wake up and like, oh my God, we ushered in anarchy. (laughs) It's a natural evolution. It's a natural decrease and it ebbs and flows. But I do think that the needle drifts closer and closer, you know, ever more as history drives on towards liberty and freedom. And I do think that over time that societies are going to push more and more towards that sort of decentralization and away from the monopoly of violence. And doesn't mean it'll, you know, perhaps we will never have a time where the earth is from sea to shining sea, a complete anarchy all over the globe. But that's not an argument against the moral efficacy of anarchy or an argument against the idea that we couldn't make anarchy work somewhere for some length of time. And to sprinkle in a little bit of Christian perspective in here, the Christian knows that this world is temporary. We're trying to find the best way to live at peace while we are here and to spread the gospel and to reflect Christ. And if there's two things here. One, if we push for anarchy and we achieve it, but we don't achieve it all over the world, well, isn't that kind of be expected? Like, you know, perhaps the best we can make this world while we live here is a, some of it will be anarchically organized and people live more or less at peace. It's not perfect, but it's an improvement from the status quo. And then some places of the world aren't living in anarchy and there's continue to be places that people of the faith do work in, do missionary work in, and you, you just keep fighting the good fight, right? Alternatively, what if we keep advocating for anarchy, but from now to the end of the time, anarchy doesn't really succeed? Well, maybe pushing for anarchy because of its moral efficacy or the rightfulness of its positions and its ideas doesn't get you the whole way there, but maybe that pushes you towards a radical minarchy, which, listen, I'm not saying it's my preferred system, but I'll take a radical minarchy over the status quo. And so in the same way that abolitionists advocated for the complete end of slavery, and slavery hasn't completely ended, but we keep pushing for that, anarchists push for the abolition of tyranny and the slavery of the state. But if we don't ever get there, but we keep making progress towards it incrementally at a time, that's a win. As we're decreasing violence, we're decreasing coercion, we're decreasing tyranny. It, I would say that realistic anarchy is the rejection of, of utopianism, to go back to the beginning of the episode, and rather the embracing of the idea that we can't 
make utopia through trying to force things to be better. All we have are ourselves and our neighbors and trying to just do our best to live at peace with all and to do that one person at a time voluntarily through the free market and social cooperation. And the sooner we, you know, more of us push that idea and seek to implement it and implement a more decentralized model, the better we'll get at doing that over time. I would say that a Christian would be against the idea of a violent overthrow of the state, at least in in many contexts. Now, you know, there's probably a line where like if you're living in Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia or something like that, and there's some kind of breaking point and the people revolt against the tyrant that they're living other, uh, under, these things could be complicated and messy and hard to speculate as to the exact right Christian response. I don't think we should relish or celebrate in the idea of violence, even if it's violent overthrow. A lot of times violent overthrows of particular governments just leads to the violent revolutionaries become becoming the next violent authoritarians. But we should always be focused on justice, on our hearts, hungering after justice and looking for ways to decrease violence. And I would not say that I have a religious dogma against resistance to political tyranny in all cases, only because it's hard to imagine every single possible type of hypothetical situation. You know, I mean, the country of America was founded through a revolution, a sort of defense against a foreign empire. And although that hasn't worked out perfectly, it, at least for a short time afterwards, many would argue that it was an improvement in terms of the advancement of human liberty and that the Constitution, although not perfect, was a important developmental step in the advancement of human liberty. So again, no one has all the answers and there's no... If anarchism is the rejection of central planning, then there's no central plan to get to anarchism. It's just, it's something that you hope spontaneously, there's the idea, a term that anarchists use, and spontaneous order. And that's what the free market does. And the more we decrease coercion and the more we decrease the monopoly of violence, the more that spontaneous order takes over and works things out. And I would say that spontaneous order is God's natural order, in fact. The, the last point, then is how do we prevent corruption? Well, I think one of the best ways to prevent corruption is to not institutionalize it. Because I think when you have nothing but voluntary exchanges as the basis of how society functions, now there's maybe corruption in a sense that maybe one of the potential pitfalls of a free market is that people want to make money and so human greed can be a factor. But there's a check on human greed in a free market, which is that you can only get money if you give people value. If you give people value, they give you more money. If you fail to deliver something that people value, then you get less money. And so the free market is in some ways self-regulating, not perfectly, but self-regulating to a large degree. But compare this to, again, I think we should always ask compared to what, and compare this to institutionalizing a monopoly of violence over people. Institutionalizing people having power over others, having the enshrined in law the right to initiate violence over people on a right to seize property and all this, this just begs and invites corruption into your governing structures. 
anarchist governing structures that are constructed in the market, they're only subject to human greed, but there's no there's no embedded power structure there to really hijack. It's all voluntary transactions. Whereas with the state, you have a already pre-built on mass institution of theft and violence that people will be drawn to. And in fact, a lot of the people get drawn into it. They do so because they are hoping to like engage in that corruption. They're hoping to advance their personal wealth or advance the wealth of their donors or their or lobbyists or to change regulations and whatnot to benefit them and their interests or their supporters and everything like that. So when you have nothing but voluntary transactions, you have a lot less of a window to incentivize or to invite corruption than you do when you have the state in all of those implicit tied up mechanisms that are just evil on their face value. And then it just evil will beget evil and corruption will beget corruption. I remember back in my days as a lefty, when I was a Bernie Sanders supporter, you know, I used to be attracted to the argument that Bernie Sanders would make about the, you know, we got to get money out of politics, right? You got to make politics less corrupt. But what clicked for me was just realizing that, getting money out of politics is basically impossible. Like, what are you going to do? Pass a law that says you can't bribe politicians, that you can't donate to them? It's like, well, then they'll just do it behind closed doors or they'll find the same way they find loopholes for taxes. They'll find loopholes for political donations and political favors. You have back, back, backhand deals, backdoor deals, and everything like that. Every law that gets passed is a million pages long with all sorts of pork and different things added in that people, you know, they're not going to pass the bill. If it's these giant bills that have all the things that their donors and lobbyists, you know, and campaign backers are making them put in there. And if they don't do it, they're not going to get reelection. This system is built for the corrupt by the corrupt. <laughs> it's not a government for the people and by the people. It's a government for the corrupt and by the corrupt. So, I mean, free markets aren't utopia, but they can't be any more corrupt than what we have now. So, again, if you're expecting anarchy to be utopia, that it's the elimination of all human evil, all human greed, all human corruption, and nothing bad ever happens, and you get rainbows and unicorns and some lollipops and some just everything is exactly perfect all the time, you're not engaging in reality. You're not engaging in a good faith argument. Anarchism is you know, anarchist society is still going to be subject to sin and the fall and all sorts of problems. But it helps when you don't start out, you know what I mean? It's like anarchism is just basically starting at zero and trying to build up wealth rather than starting from like, you know, $100,000 in debt and trying to build up wealth. You know, it's like you're, it's already hard enough. We don't need to make it harder. So, well, that concludes today's episode. I hope that, this was enjoyable, educational, interesting that you got value out of it and that you enjoyed listening to this. Let me know what you think about this episode and this kind of content. Let me know if you have any questions. Let me know if you have any topics that you want me to cover. You can reach out to me at Biblical Anarchy on Twitter, or you can shoot me an email, which would be daniel 3184 liberty at gmail.com. And so just to repeat that. It's Daniel, all lowercase, the numbers 3184 liberty at gmail.com. Or you can go to 
the website and reach out there as well, biblicalanarchypodcast.com. And let me know if you have any topics that you would be interested in me covering or any questions or just about this episode or things I've talked about in other episodes, or if you just want to chat, say hi, ask uh, (laughs) anything of the sorts like that. And yeah, I appreciate you listening in. If, as always, if you leave a review or uh, share around with your friends or whatnot, it's always a big help to get the word out and get more people to listen. And please check out more of the Christians for Liberty Network podcasts. We got the Godarchy podcast. We got the Reformed Libertarians podcast. We have the flagship, of course, the Libertarian Christian podcast with Doug Stewart and the Faith Seeking Freedom with Norman Horn and Good News, Bad News with Matthew Bellis. And there'll be more podcasts and things to come in the future. And I'm really excited with all the great content we're putting out. And so if you love this show, check out their shows as well. That's it for this time, my friends. Catch you next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.